I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and the Ryder Cup starts tomorrow. So first up in this episode, we have some predictions. I called up some familiar voices and asked them to go out on a limb and say what they think will happen this week in Rome. First, you'll hear from Andy Johnson, then from Brendan Porath, and finally from Joseph Lamagna. I'll talk to each of them for about 10 minutes, so quick hits here. And after that, I'll have a conversation with Shane Ryan about the history of the Ryder Cup. So a very different subject. Shane is the author of The Cup They Couldn't Lose, which is about the 2021 Cup at Whistling Straits, but also about the general sweep of Ryder Cup history. So I thought this would be an interesting time to speak with Shane about how the 2023 event fits into that history. All right, let's get to it. After this break, some quick predictions with Andy, Brendan, and Joseph, and then Shane Ryan. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because... I've never been very good at sticking to a routine with vitamins or pills, but now I just drink AG1 in the morning before my first cup of coffee, and it immediately clears my head and makes me feel like I've done something good for my body right off the bat. I started drinking AG1 a few months ago, and I've definitely noticed some improvements in my digestion and my energy levels. You know, this is especially helpful when I'm on the road, which I was until just yesterday, basically. I don't always eat super healthy food when I'm traveling. Think like, you know, burgers or uh, country club grill room food and things like that. I, I don't always do the little things, basically, that I'm able to do when I'm at home. But now I can take my AG1 travel packs with me and I know I have my nutritional bases covered. Every day, I'm setting myself up for success with 75 high-quality ingredients that support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash thefriedegg. That's drink ag1.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. All right. First up, Andy Johnson. Andy, you just got off a of red eye. How's it going? Uh, you know, the red eye was okay. The, uh, the two and a half hour, uh, Uber from to go like 40 miles was, <laughs> that was the tough part. So yeah, I, I've been better. I've been better. That's all. That's I'm always the punch in the, the gut. That's the unexpected part. Is the is the Uber ride after, especially in like the big cities. I remember one at the U.S. Open in L.A. that was just like 
unbelievable. Um, so yeah, that that's that's always the part that gets you. All right, so I've got a set of short questions for you, meant to be answered briefly. So first up, who is going to win, and what do you think the final score is going to be? I I feel I felt good about Europe, and now that I I just saw that like the betting lines are now favoring Europe. It makes me like feel worse about Europe, but I'm still going to go with Europe and I'm going to go 16-12 Europe. So 16-12, would you characterize that as like a close match? I think that's maybe the most interesting question. Is it going to be close or is it going to be like another blowout? I think this is going to be a close one. I think that if you, I think the top end talent obviously is, is biased to the Europeans, but this is about depth. You got to play four matches a day during the team competition. Um, so, you know, it's great that Europe has like this unbelievable top three um, in Hovland, Rom, and Rory. But, you know, you start to look down the the sheet and in the U.S.'s depth is is unbelievable. And so I think it's going to be close. Um, I, you know, if I was going to say what am I most interested in the, in the golf course about is, you know, uh, uh, Trevor Immelman brought up a good point is like there is no European when we talked earlier in the week, there is no real European style anymore because all the top Europeans play on the PGA Tour. Yeah, I think that the the home course advantage even is is recently as Le Golf National is less mitigated because the European team, their playing characteristics more resemble 2021 uh, at Whistling Straits, the American team than that 2021 European team. Like out with the old, you got new guys in, and they're big hitters. They are, you know, they are kind of more American style players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe Ian Poulter wouldn't have been on this team, but the fact that Ian Poulter has essentially been replaced by like Ludwig Aberg, yeah, makes and- makes the team more, you know, what you would traditionally consider American. Uh, Lee know, Westwood's yeah. say just replaced by Nikolai Hogard, right? Like that's a different type of player. And Westwood was, a, a, you know, an unbelievable ball striker, but you know he wasn't the longest hitter out right. there. He was he was plenty long, but you know Hogard is is long, you know, and a little bit. They're they're much more. I think like. I think that 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 idea of the European American style play within the modern era is just becoming the modern era style of play. And everybody, you know, it's that Xander quote is, you know, just hit it far and, and go find it. it. Out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I think that I think that's a really interesting trend to track. I think that's really true that these styles are converging around the one thing that everybody's teaching now. Yeah. And so I think that this like setup talk, all the talk about setup American, European, that's just going to get more and more diminished over the over the coming years. Yeah. There still might be a home field advantage in the sense of the crowd, but you know, I think the crowd and the familiarity, like the yeah. guys, like the Europeans have played this course more. Yes. They've played it under tournaments. And regardless of what you say, like especially these guys that have won there, there are like good good feelings you know, and I don't, I don't have any analytics behind it. This is never good when you start with that. This is all just, you know, but I'm going to have Joseph on here too. So he'll, he'll bring the analytics presumably. But like, if you play well, a tournament, if you play well at a golf course and you've won there, it's really hard to play bad there later in your life because you go there and there's just this, you know, golf is all about fighting back nervous, nervous energy. 
And if you're familiar, you've won, you've finished high at a place, you go back to those courses and that nervous energy doesn't exist as much because you're just comfortable there. And it's, you know, especially in a Ryder Cup with the with the kind of added team pressure that, you know, the pressure is not letting down 11 other guys. I feel like if you talk to any professional golfer, what what, you know, that played a lot of sports, if you ask them what drew you to this sport, they almost always say, like, I didn't have to rely on anybody else. And, like, these are people that, that, like, chose a sport that they don't have teammates and they like that aspect about it. Yeah. When you have these team competitions, it just, like, illuminates. You know, there's just more pressure. You feel worse. Like, I, it's why caddying is sometimes, in a tournament, is sometimes more nerve-wracking than playing in a tournament. You don't want to mess something up for somebody else. You don't want to let somebody else down. Right. You're willing to take responsibility for your own effect on yourself. But when it's somebody else, it, it brings something else into play. Um, all right. Let's uh, finish with some quick hitters here. Most valuable player on either team. All right. I'm going to ride. I'm going to ride the hot hand. Uh, I'm going to take uh, Victor Hovland. Uh, I know he was very disappointed. I, I mean, two years ago with the way he's developed as a player, these aren't the same players. Um, I think like that's one of the interesting things about the Europeans is Fitzpatrick and Hovland are like completely different players than they were at Whistling Straits, like statistically different. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take Victor Hovland there. I just think that this is a guy that is going to be an outstanding um, alternate shot player because of the consistency, the accuracy, and he's just playing such good golf that I, I'm, I'm going to take him for most valuable player. Yeah, might be the hottest player in the world right now. Um, all right, least valuable player, again, on either team. Least, I, I think it's Bob McIntyre. <laughs> I, I don't want to... Uh, Big shot Bob. Oh, my well, goodness. Well, I, I, you know, it was, it was a cute photo with him and his onesie, his Ryder Cup European Tour onesie. Um, but I think that... He might not play very much. It it looks like it looked like on the range he was quite frustrated with the driver, and I could see maybe this is a two match um, uh, session for for Bob McIntyre. Yeah, and a, a potentially an O two and O record that 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 wouldn't be nobody would be shocked by that. But you know, again, I think then that, again, I he think... he won the Italian Open at this course, and so you know, who's more comfortable here than than Big Shot Bob? I think that's the thing is if if you know a guy doesn't have it, you got to play him as little as possible. I know that the captains are very resistant to to not sending him drill signals, but maybe you just hide him into one of the best ball formats and hope that he makes five birdies when you know, and uh, you you play him there and and one singles match. All right, let's get a Doke score for Marco Simone. I haven't been there. I can't give you a dose. Listen, I mean, I'm 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 asking for a prediction here because we're going to see this course all week. We're going to watch it, I think, and I think we're going to get a sense for for you know whether it's any good. I think the I think the thing about this golf course, and I think this is you know we're we're living in a in a world that's becoming more and more black and white, and but in reality, almost situ every situation there are multiple things that can be true. I think Marco Simone, from what I've seen, I haven't been there, is not a very good golf course. But 
I do think it's got some things that are going to make it an exciting Ryder Cup course. It's the drivable fours, the par fives. The setup to me is going to be very interesting to see what they do, what the rough's like. Um, and the way it, you know, it can, it can reward just accuracy, right? So like, do I, do I want to fly across the country or fly across the world to Rome to play Marco Simone? No. Do I want to fly across the world to Rome? Yes. But golf wouldn't be high on my list if I flew across the country to Rome or across (laughs) the world of Rome. So with that, I just, I think that it could be an exciting golf course to watch but not necessarily a good one, if that if that's possible, if that's allowed. I think that's allowed, and I think it's also probably going to be a very effective Ryder Cup venue in the sense of you know, creating a crowd atmosphere. I wrote about this for Design Notebook and Club TFE this week. You know, I remember Los Angeles Country Club, great U.S. Open course, but was it a good U.S. Open venue considering – it was kind of dead in a lot of parts of that course. That's something that Marco Simone is they not going to have. They should bring the first tee atmosphere of LACC to the Ryder Cup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have the, <laughs> just have members and VIPs around, <laughs> around the I mean, like Golden, Marco Simone members. Goldman Sachs, a uh, <laughs> couple people out there. Exactly. Morning session, maybe three or four people come out to clap. Uh, that, would be, that would be something. All right, Andy. Uh, thank All you right. for stopping by. Have a great week. Thanks, Garrett. All right, Brendan Porath, you are in New York City with Andy Johnson right now. How are the accommodations? They're fine. They're great. <laughs> the, I have a beef with the coffee table not being within reach of the couch. This is a Ooh. general pervasive problem. I shouldn't have to move furniture. If it's a coffee table, I need to be able to reach my coffee from the couch. But other than that, the accommodations are great. Thanks okay. Okay. I mean that that would that does that does dock it though. That takes it from an A to a B. If it's an A, it's a B. Problem given yeah. given the the coffee table situation. All right. Let's dig into some Ryder Cup predictions. So first off, who do you think is going to win, and what will the final score be? Uh, I think the United States is going to win. Uh, I think they're going to win by uh, whatever adjective comfortable margin. Mm. Um, I, I think maybe 15 and a half to 12 okay. and a half. Does that even add up? Yeah. 15 yeah and a, I, I think that's right. I, I, I think that the opportunity has never been clearer. I think that was the case in France. I think there were some incredibly unique circumstances in France, given the course setup. I, I don't think that carries over to this particular course setup, given the tiger and fill element that I don't think is, uh, is obviously no longer a part of this team. Um, the organization's better. The process is better. The team is better than it has been in these 30 years. It's younger, as Jordan Spieth has been quite uh, unequivocal about stating. They played no part in any of this 30 years of baggage. You know, Spieth occasionally, he was there in 2014 as a wide-eyed sort of rookie. Uh, so it, it's just a different team, a different process. Is the task incredibly difficult? Yes. Um, but But I think... You know, everything is lined up. The opportunity, the motivation, the stakes have never been higher, and the talent is there to match it. Very well said. That I'm I'm almost persuaded. Um, <laughs> I've been kind of going with the the uh, the trend right now, which seems to be favoring Europe. Right. But then, I mean, when you when you look at these teams, like clearly that sort of middle section of the U.S. team is very very strong, and there's been such a minimum of drama. Uh, on the U.S. Ryder Cup team over the past 
you know, eight to 10 years, even, it seems like this process is really like sort of clicking in. What's incredible about the Ryder Cup is, is the amount of energy we spend. And we're doing that right now. Uh, and it's not wasted energy, but trying to suss out so many like intangible things, like who is more motivated? Is the pressure higher or greater on this team or or this person? And these are critical parts of the competition. It's just, it's hard to measure and hard to quantify and hard to discuss in very precise terms um, for a three-day event, right? It's 28 points. It's the perfect, and, and that's why, honestly, this is part of the charm of it too. I'm, I'm not suggesting this is a negative thing. This is why... It becomes this this perfect event. We spend so much time in golf, uh, at least professional golf, I should say, talking about the, how things need to be changed or fixed or elevated, whether it's the points or the PGA Tour schedule. or There's so many few Sundays where we're not looking for something to be tweaked or, or modified for the better. And the Ryder Cup, by and large, has it perfect. This format, even after a, a run of blowouts, quite honestly, we haven't had a close one since 2012, but we still love it and are charmed by it so much for for kind of the exercise we're going through so much uh, through right now uh, is this trying to quantify, trying to understand uh, this such a unique um, setting where it's match play and the best in the world are kind of put in a different in- environment. Nobody tries to golf czar the Ryder Cup. That <laughs> right. never happens. Whenever right. whenever you try to golf czar professional golf, the assumption is always <laughs> we're keeping the Ryder Cup exactly as it is. Because right. that is working. We're keeping the Masters exactly as it is. We're keeping right. the Open exactly as it is. Yeah. There are these things that work. And right. the Ryder Cup is one of those things. And, and you just have to appreciate it. All right. Most valuable player on either team. This doesn't have to be U.S. and Europe. Just across all the players who are involved. Across all the players who are involved. This is a an interesting one. I, I'm struck. Look. Obviously, the European side is incredibly uh, strong at the top, right? We've heard this several times, top three players. Uh, On the U.S. side, I'm struggling to find someone I'm incredibly skeptical of. It's it's more about choosing from a lot of great options who could be the MVP. I think think I'm going to go slightly off the board with Max Homa. Uh, I don't know how far off the board that is. He's he's not the very top-rated player on either team. Um, We saw him succeed in the President's Cup. Uh, we've seen him sort of succeed when he's in contention, when these stakes are high, when the opportunity is right in front of him in match play. That is obviously there. It's a 50-50 proposition, right? Minus a few percentage points for ties. And so you start the week with the with that 50-50 deal. You start the match with that 50-50 deal, not one of 156. And we've seen him, when those, those opportunities are in front of him, really go and grab it. And I think he's going to get several, you know, a, play, a lot of playing opportunities. I think he'll probably play maybe four matches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm going to go with Max Homa based on, on what we've seen from him the last uh, few years. It's interesting. This is his first Ryder Cup. Obviously, he was in the President's Cup as well and did great there. Mm-hmm. But it already seems like Max Homa is kind of like a leader of the U.S. team. He's one of those guys where it feels like this is his third or fourth Ryder Cup, but uh, but he's really well integrated into the kind of social dynamics of of the team and it wouldn't be surprising to see him become like a great team match play player in this kind of second act of his career um all right least valuable player uh 
to be fair, I think, uh, you know, I, I was on the other side of the room. I heard uh, Andy kind of already laid the wood to Bobby Mack. I believe it looked like he was laying the wood. To, it it yes, sounded he, like he, he was he, nominating. He was, being, he was being nice about it, but it was, okay. yes, that Bob, Bob McIntyre was his pick. All right. So he's in the crosshairs. I, I guess the one American I'm a little skeptical of is Wyndham Clark, right? He is a rookie. Um, he is putting, being put in the blunder right now of having to say his words were taken out of context. The Euro press is like a dog with a bone right now because he you know, deigned to suggest he would, would like to play the best players in the world and has confidence in his own abilities. Uh, I thought his quotes were taken a little too far, but since then he's talked about how they could be leaking oil because they're tired. I just haven't seen Wyndham Clark ever in this setting. I know he won a U.S. Open. His form has been consistent and strong throughout the year. Um, but he is put, being put on a ba- his back foot right now, right? Mm-hmm. He's not one of these uh, boisterous types. He's I, I don't think he's full of this bravado, but he is being put on his back foot. Uh, it's a new, entirely new experience for him, any kind of team play, right? Nothing home, away, presidents, anything like that. Uh, so I'm a little, I guess... I wouldn't be surprised if he succeeds, but I'm skeptical that that he may get few opportunities and not be ready for the blunder he's in. Yeah, that's a good one. Marco Simone, do you have a hole to watch at Marco Simone? Like something something for people to 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 focus on that might be slightly interesting about this golf course? I mean, I think we're all flying somewhat blind and, and the course is regrettably become sort of this ancillary part of the Ryder Cup, right? It's just, it, it fills in the gaps, which, you know, I'll always quibble with, like both masters can be served. We're not naive to why they choose the places they choose. It's money. It's But like, it's hard, but you could do it. You could serve both masters and pick a great venue and figure out the money and figure out, like you could, it's just harder. And so, you know, we understand why they pick the venues they pick. For me, what I've seen from afar is 16 looks intriguing. It looks like a, a reachable. We were watching Victor Sean Zock had a, a nice video of, of Victor Hovland striping at three wood. I've seen several others. Ludwig really stick it close. It's an eagle opportunity. It. Which hole did who? Andy's saying something in the background now. Who? Who? Novak Djokovic apparently drove a hole in the the Novak the Djokovic celebrity drove? celebrity oh, man. writer. Joseph Lamagna must be absolutely glowing right now. Apparently, Joker uh, drove. Uh, you know, Joseph is a like big he, Novak fan. <laughs> he drove a hole today. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think sixteen looks like that kind of opportunity. It could be at the death at the last bit of a match. Uh, so we'll go with sixteen. It's a really quirky course, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's like a bunch of these par fours that are 500 plus yards and then a bunch that are reachable and there's not a lot right. of in between. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll go with 16. The, you're, you're right. There are, and, and the, the difficulty of the holes varies so widely on this course. It's like if, uh, if it's not an eagle hole, then it's like you're grinding for a par if you're, if you're a pro. Um, and right. so it's uh yeah it's a it's a curious curious little course but I think 16 is probably the one that's going to get a lot of attention it might be the last hole of a lot of matches and so sure. you're going to get this high stakes thing and then also there's an arena around it right it's in that kind of central valley that they tried mm-hmm. to use a lot of in the routing so that the gallery could be up above and 16 is very much part of that that portion of the property um, so should be kind of cool. Um, all right, one last question, kind of a wild card here, Uh-oh. but which player, and I guess this is just relevant to the American team, but which player do you think is going to raise the ire 
of the British press the most? <laughs> uh, it's sometimes the ones we least expect, right? It's weird that <laughs> Wyndham Clark is now all of a sudden this this sort of uh, pinata they're going for. Yeah, I right guess now. the answer is already Wyndham Clark. It, <laughs> like it, it's it, almost like this is not even a prediction now. Yeah, it could be. I, I mean, he, could, there's a, the target could go on anybody next. Yeah. It could be maybe Max Homa. Mm. I, I I mean I think he can run a little, yeah. you know, intense and hot yeah. and not in an unsporting way, but a way that might be perceived as as unsporting or, or worth you know being you know attacked or or questioned by the British press. I think it could be Homa. I, I hate to go back to Homa. JT feels like the the easy answer. I don't think he's going to be doing shotgunning beers and the you know all that deal that he did at Whistling Straits. Um, but JT's the easy answer, but I think I'm going to go with uh, another one that, that Homa getting kind of caught up, uh, emotionally invested in these matches doesn't, I don't know, raises their eyebrows. So, all right. Some things to watch out for. Thank you, Brendan, for coming on the pod. Uh, have a good rest of the week. All right. Thanks so much, Garrett. All right, Joseph Lamagna, our last check-in for this first segment of the pod. Joseph, how are things going? <laughs> I'm pumped, Garrett. This is going to be such a fun week for so many reasons like the overanalyzing the course the historical implications i'm pumped yep yeah so you know the the thing about the Ryder cup is that it's at least as fun to overanalyze it as it is to watch it that's sort of like the magic of it we spend we spend all this time doing it and it's like this is this is really the good stuff right here um all right so first question right off the bat who is going to win and what will the final score be I almost can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm taking the Americans in a narrow win. I'll go 15-13 USA. I, I was getting Europe vibes, and I thought they were kind of undervalued for the past six months. I've kind of gone back a little bit the other direction. I think the tide has turned a little bit too much in favor of Europe. And I know that they've had trouble winning over there, but I think this could be the year. Yeah. And I've said this uh, before in the other segments with Andy and Brendan, but I think an equally interesting question is whether this is going to be another blowout or whether we're going to get a close Ryder Cup, you know? And so part of the prediction here that you're making is that this would be a close one, 15 to 13. Like it's almost as close as it gets. So that would be very exciting, no matter which direction it goes. I, yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be a blowout. I mean, there could be. Frank, I think it's more likely that Team USA would blow out Team Europe than Team Europe would blow out Team USA. But I also liked, I liked Team USA in Paris. I think I've learned quite a bit since then to where I wouldn't make that same prediction if they were to run that one back. But in this particular case, I think the depth of Team USA will be a pretty big factor, especially late. Okay. All right. Most valuable player. On either team. So this is out of the 24 players most valuable. I'm going Scotty Scheffler. Um, big caveat that we may get to in a second, but I think this golf course is perfect for Scotty Scheffler and would be very surprised if he doesn't perform extremely well. So I'll, I'll say he's the most valuable player. Do you have any takes on his putting? I don't know if you've been following the latest news out of the Scotty Scheffler uh, putting narrative, yep. but um, he's been working with Phil Kenyon, I guess, and all of that stuff. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't have a strong thought on what those lessons mean and right. I wouldn't what the technique means. Right. I, I couldn't say, you know, I, I lo I've looked at some before and afters and it's like, okay, yeah, the setup looks different, but... I don't, who knows? Right. Yeah. I don't 
think he can putt much worse than he has been putting. And I think right. even with poor putting factored, he, he's going to be fine here. I think this whole notion that putting is going to be important is completely overblown. And, I mean, Tommy Fleetwood and Francesco Molinari aren't great putters, and look what they did in Paris. I think this is going to be a hardcore get-it-to-the-green contest, a tee to green, and the putting is just kind of overblown in general. So I think this sets up very well for Scotty Scheffler. And if a player makes all their money with putter, I could see this being a week where they struggle. Okay. That, that's a, that's an interesting insight about the course. Um, all right. Least valuable player, again, out of the 24 in Rome. Well, this is a natural segue. and This is exactly where I wanted to go with this. I, I think it's Sam Burns. Mm. And I, I think that for a couple reasons. One, I don't think he sets up very well for this golf course. Not a great long iron player. He's a player who tends to get his make his money with wedge and putter, and that's not really something you're going to have the opportunity to do a bunch. And the main reason I think he could be the least valuable player is there's a good chance he's paired with Scotty Scheffler, who fits this golf course extremely well. And if Sam Burns ends up holding back one of the best players in the field, I think that could be a pretty big issue for Team USA. All right. So switching to talking a little bit about the course here, do you have a hole that you think is going to be particularly interesting at this venue? Most interesting hole? I'll go with hole five because that hole can play differently based on conditions, based on tee box, pin location, firmness. It's a short par four over water and you know, just depending on the day and the conditions, you may get some teams laying up. You may get some teams going for it. Uh, I think it'll be really interesting to watch which players decide to do, you know, which strategies they take on different days, but also which teams take the more aggressive versus the more conservative strategies. And it'll be really interesting to see if, you know, on a particular setup, Team Europe has their team doing the exact same thing with all of their groups versus Team USA that is probably not as uh, in, in tune to the best course management. So that'll be a really one, interesting one to watch. Yeah, hole five, it's one of the few holes at Marco Simone that's kind of flat. You know, again, I haven't been on the property. This is just judging from videos and, and photos that I've seen of the course. But relatively flat compared to other holes, and you have that big pond, essentially, and it looks to me like the pond is a major factor for layups, just as it is for going for the green. If it's drivable on a particular day, which I'm sure it will be, there are like three different holes at Marco Simone that can and, and may be drivable at this event. But hole five, that, that layup just looks tricky. I, I guess there's plenty of room to do it, but it almost seems like a lot of players are going to say, you know what? I might dump this layup in the water. Why not just be aggressive here? Do you have that sense too? Yeah, and, and I think it will really depend on the conditions. I mean, if you if it's super firm, let's say your uh, pins back, and best case, your drive, not best case, but a, a pretty likely outcome, you're hitting drive, you're taking on a lot of risk of not carrying the water, and best case, it bounces over the back and you're short-sided. Like that's, that's also not a great situation where you're hitting driver either. So it just depends on the conditions, how soft things are, what the wind's doing, uh, where the pin is. I mean, I've seen guys like Matt Fitzpatrick, who is pretty, <laughs> has pretty smart course management, take both tacts based on the pin location and conditions. So I think you're going to see both. 
Okay. Final question. Who do you think is the most likely to complain about the fan behavior in Rome? I'm kind of punting on this one, Garrett. (laughs) And my answer is that I think we're finally at a stage where the golfers who are participating in this don't complain about that kind of stuff. I think we've got guys on both sides who are down for the atmosphere, who are excited about it, and who won't complain. Mm. So I don't think anyone's going to. Maybe the obvious answer here is probably somebody on the American side. But I think if anyone complains about something fan interaction-wise, it could be John Rahm. He's he's kind of been feisty about some of this stuff recently. I don't. There's going to be so many European fans that I don't think he's going to get like heckled. But small disturbances seem to bother John Rahm about as much as anybody on either team. So it wouldn't surprise me if he has some kind of outburst. But I don't expect anybody to. It should be a fun, uh, good environment where everyone's kind of about the spirit. Small disturbances seem to bother John Rahm's caddy, too. I've uh, <laughs> I've noticed that, uh, Mr. Hayes. Um, but uh, it seems like cameras are sort of rom's main pet peeve yeah but yeah he does uh, he and his his caddy both uh interact with the fans and 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 not always in in the most uh you know friendly friendly terms so so that would be that would be interesting i always i always think it's funny when like a player's spouse gets in gets into the mix with uh, uh talking about the crowd I, I think sergio garcia's wife did at one point maybe it was at hazeltine um and so uh that that's always a fun uh, all the families come to the Ryder cup and they're on the scene too they're sort of like part of the action um and so that's that's always a, a little side storyline that i love tracking yeah well the garcias won't be naming their next kid marco simone <laughs> that would be That'd be a pretty good name for a Sergio Garcia child, honestly. Marco Simone Garcia. I mean, yeah. that that is – if you want your kid to be a great golfer, like I think that's a great golfer name. That's like the new yeah. Savvy Ballesteros. Azalea, Firethorn, and Marco Simone. <laughs> All right, Joseph. I hope you have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. Probably talk again to – uh, to wrap up the the Ryder Cup if, if you have some time afterwards. So uh, right after this music that you're hearing right now, you will hear from Shane Ryan about the history of the Ryder Cup. Shane Ryan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Welcome to you. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being welcomed awkward, onto your show. What's the most awkward way I can start? <laughs> Welcome you, right back, Garrett. I can tell that you are a podcasting professional you, by, yep, by how it, you handled that. You just know right away this guy is this guy is the real deal. <laughs> well, you are definitely a professional writer. Do you notice how I did that segue? By the very way, very good, very good. Um, because you have an excellent book called "The Cup They Couldn't Lose," which is really relevant right now with the Ryder Cup coming up. Um, and I want to talk about basically everything you researched for that book and, and some of the history you dug into. The book is is about the 2021 Ryder Cup, but it's also about the history of the Ryder Cup. So I want to start you with like a, a high school history class prompt. Okay. All right. So the, the, the situation is this. Europe is still kind of the preeminent team in the Ryder Cup, right? The Europeans have still won – seven of the 10 Ryder Cups in this century or something like that. The U.S. still hasn't won a Ryder Cup on European soil in 30 years or so. So basically the prompt is this. 
if you were to tell the story of how Team Europe got itself into this position, where would you start in history? What would be the earliest you would go? That's a great question. Yeah. And, you know, I think I would just qualify what you said. It's sort of like Britain at the end of like the colonial empire where you're like, they're still technically have all these countries, but it's not going well. <laughs> right. Like it's like, they, like they're, they're kind of coasting on their history a little bit right now. I kind of feel that way about Europe. I, I think in like two weeks, we may be like America is now the predominant team. This may be just before, this may be just before Yorktown in the American revolution. <laughs> <laughs> like It's like you, you do still America is still your colony, but we, we don't think it's going to last much longer. Um, no. So yeah. Go, how did Europe achieve dominance? Great question. Um, you know, the background, of course, is that this Ryder Cup started in 1927, which was already post-World War One, when America was had, had pretty much firmly established itself as the preeminent golfing power, uh, which would only get worse right after World War Two. And, you know, it would, they would just keep getting better and better. So as you might expect, they were just playing the UK at the time. They weren't playing all of Europe. The Americans dominated this event completely for 50 years about. Um, almost perfectly 50 years, right? That takes us to 1977, which was the last year that the Ryder Cup was only the UK and Ireland. Starting in 1979, it went to Team Europe. The US crushed them two more times in 79 and 81. And then we get to the answer to your question, which is 1983, uh, when Tony Jacklin took over as captain of the European team. It was uh, unexpected for him. He He was somebody who had played... All these Ryder Cups, he had the famous concession moment with Jack Nicklaus in 69. That was the only one. That was a tie, but technically America retained it because they had won before. That was the only time he got close. I think he played seven Ryder Cups and was demolished in the others by the Americans. He was very upset at the Ryder Cup team for not including him the year before. There's a lot of drama there. He hated them. He kind of thought they hated him. And so 1983 comes, and it's just as months before the Ryder Cup starts, right? So now you have your captain basically two years in advance. Months before, they didn't have uh, a captain. They barely had sponsors. Their main sponsor in, on the European side had dipped out, being like, I don't know, it was a, a big bank of some kind. And they're like, I don't know why we're doing this. You know, <laughs> you get your butts kicked every single time. We're not sponsoring you anymore. They couldn't find a sponsor for the longest time until they visited some whiskey company called Bells in Scotland. So they barely got a sponsor in time. The Ryder Cup was almost dead. And then they went to Tony Jacklin after this long debate that Jacklin didn't know what was happening. Like Bernard Langer was, you know, debating the old guys and they were like, the captaincy should be a lifetime achievement award. And Langer was like, no, we need somebody who's like more there, right? We need somebody who's kind of like of our generation, at least a little bit, who can understand us. We need to take this seriously. And they eventually listened to him because they wanted, you know, the European tour, the fledgling European tour and the British PGA. They wanted this thing to keep going. So they approached Tony Jacklin, who immediately was like, fine, if you meet all my demands, I want to I want to travel on the Concorde. I want nicer clothing. Tony Jacklin, at one point in his Ryder Cup career, his the shoes that they gave him had fallen apart during the Ryder Cup. And this is like foremost in his mind. <laughs> like this shoe incident sticks in his head. He's like, I want nicer shoes. I want nicer clothes. <laughs> I want a locker room, like an actual team room, not just some musty old locker room where we can give a speech, but I want like, I want all this stuff. And they said yes to everything and they had to hustle to get some of it. So it's like with the Concord, they had to finance it by promising, you know, 50 mega fans that if you pay money for this, you can fly over with us. Right. They had to kind of be creative, but they said yes to everything. And then Tony Jacklin's last demand was, I want Seve Ballesteros on the team. And, 
you know, Sevi Ballesteros had been demanding appearance rights on the European tour, which he had every right to demand, right? The European tour had a policy of we're not doing appearance fees unless Americans come over <laughs> that we want to see. And then we'll do appearance fees. And Sevi Ballesteros is like, screw that, right? So Sevi Ballesteros was persona non grata. He was left off the 81 team. Tony Jacklin said, I need Sevi. Like, he's one of the best players in the world. We absolutely need him. And this guy named, oh my God, I'm going to forget his name, but he was a cousin to Queen Elizabeth. Are you talking Lord, about Lord Darby? Lord Darby, yes. Yeah. Lord Darby, who was a cousin to Queen Elizabeth and would not deign to ask Tony Jacklin to take the captaincy himself. You know, he sent his underlings. But once Jacklin said yes, he met with him. And Jacqueline was like, well, what about Seve? And Darby was like, well, he's your problem now. <laughs> that's, that, that's, by the way, that's not what I think he talked like. That's the exact impression. <laughs> that's exactly correct. That's actually a really good impression of like uh, a, a posh, him, posh English accent. Yeah. There's like a very particular royal English accent. That's actually very good, Shane. I feel like if I kept doing it, we'd get more. He's like, I don't care. I'll to play. No. Um, so, yeah. So, Tony Jacklin met with Seve Ballesteros at the Prince of Wales Hotel uh, that summer. Uh, got him on board with the team. And then he went to Florida. And for the first time, they had this team spirit. They kind of felt like they weren't second-class citizens to the Americans like they'd always felt. And they went and they shocked them. And they, they came so close to beating them in Florida. Uh, on the last day, there's a funny moment where everything was very competitive. Um, and, um, you know, Tony Jacklin, uh, they went out to exchange their singles lineups. And the idea was that you would always put your stars at the end. This was just sort of practice. This was custom. And Jack Nicholas did that. And Sevi, or, sorry, Tony Jacklin gave him his lineup. And all the stars were in the front because he knew he had to do something dramatic to win this thing. And and Jack Nicholas actually said like you can't do that <laughs> like, like he was so shocked it was like a sitcom where like or a cartoon where his like jaw fell on the floor and his tongue rolled out um, so anyway yeah so they came that last day it was a classic match the U S did hang on Lanny Watkins hit a big shot at the end to win I think it was a fourteen and a half to thirteen and a half score and uh, afterward in the locker room the Europeans were distraught and Sevi Ballesteros was basically like stood up, paced up and down, tears coming from his eyes. And is like, this is a great triumph. We're going to beat them next time. Nobody feel down. Nobody feel bad. And he kind of lifted them all up. And, you know, to make a long story short, they won the next time at the Belfry. In 87, they went to Mirfield Village and won in America for the first time ever. They have 60 years of the Ryder Cup. They'd never done that. They beat the Americans. And just strategically, uh, you know, spiritually almost, in a million different ways, they became this tight-knit unit. And, of course, they had gr better players, right? They had all of Europe now and people like, you know, Faldo and Langer and all these great players were coming up. Um, and so they had a better team. And they just started beating the Americans with consistency uh, in a lot of close matches, to be fair. And then in the 2000s, they became not close matches anymore. They started beating them like 18 and a half to 19 and a half. And this, this kind of period of dominance where America seemed to win like one out of every four, right? Never in Europe. And then one out of every two, they lose at home. This continued for a long time until we went to Glen Eagles and Tom Watson got humiliated by Paul McGinley. It was like the archetypical like Europe just having all their shit together in America just being fundamentally clueless. Uh, and after that, the task force started, which everybody made fun of in America, but the task force has been very, very good. <laughs> and so the task force has been good. Uh, you know, they won at Hazeltine. They dominated at Whistling Straits. They got shocked in Paris and beat up, but there were a lot of weird little things that went into that. So it all comes to now where it's like, 
I think America's the better team, but they have to win in Europe to prove it. Before they win in Europe, you you don't you can't say they're the better team. I think they might this year, but it's looking like it's going to be a really great Ryder Cup. Uh, yeah, so there's your like there's your you asked me a very simple question. I gave you the overview of the entire Ryder Cup, but that's that's the survey. That's yeah. uh, well that yeah, and and if this if that's the answer to the high school history class prompt, that's a that's a very broad answer to it that we can then go back into and pick out some, you know, individual threads. There's a lot of wonderful detail in your book that you, um, that you found out through interviews with Tony Jacklin and Paul McGinley and others. Um, now going back to, you know, the 1980s, there's this great set of European players. So one thing that team Europe had going for it is that it had Sevi Ballesteros, who's unbelievable. It had Nick Faldo, who was unbelievable. So, there was this great cohort of players that could stand up to the quality of the American players overall. And then in addition to that, they seem to have better leadership from Tony Jacklin, you know, some more creative leadership, doing some things with the lineups and things like that. So there were certain dynamics emerging with team Europe that would give them more of an ability to compete with the Americans. But a lot of it had to be, these were great players, all-time great golfers on the European team. But then at some point, it seems like Team Europe found a distinct advantage organizationally, leadership-wise, that led them and that, that caused this, this era where they, they were coming to the matches with players who were widely regarded as not as good as the American players and absolutely destroying the Americans. So could you tell me a little bit about how Team Europe found those kind of hidden advantages in leadership, in organization to, you know, achieve what they achieved in the 21st century? Yeah. And and your first point is absolutely right, that without the players, none of this stuff matters, right? Like, you know, pre pre European UK team like Reginald Mc McShireville, like he's like, <laughs> right. like somebody's cousin who can't break eighty five. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, but you know, essentially you're playing Lord Darby's cousin. Yeah, Lord, Dar- <laughs> Lord Darby's entire family was the whole Ryder Cup team before then. No, but you like you can strategize your pants off, right? But you're just not gonna you're not gonna win under those circumstances. So you got to have a few players. But as you kind of hinted, the Americans have almost always, not universally, but almost always had the better team. Sometimes by far, and sometimes they still lost when they had the better team by far. So, yeah, what the question is, what did Europe do, right? And this is always kind of like it, it's the fundamental aspect of the Ryder Cup that interests me because it's so easy to look at the Ryder Cup and go, it's three days with people playing an individual sport. It's just, you know, people playing golf. It's about who plays better on the day. And I, I think Americans thought that for a long time, and it's why they kept losing. And so, as to what they did, a lot of it can be explained by they just did the smart things earlier than the U.S. So we're talking about captain's picks, right? Being able to put your guys out there. Who, um, they they were on that much sooner than the Americans were. Uh, course setup, like Tony Jacklin by the Belfry was was uh, slowing the greens down. Um, you know, making basically uh, taking the rough from around the greens because he thought the Americans were such good chippers that he wanted to make it impossible to chip. Uh, little things like that that the Americans, you know, I. Read Paul Azinger's book, and Paul Azinger, when he was captain in 2008, said that when he wanted to manipulate the course, they told him he was the first person who had ever asked that. Now, that's 23 years after after Tony Jacklin did it in Europe. So it just shows you that immense gap, right? That this was like something that it took a long time for the U.S. to catch on due to probably 
a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of complacency, right? They hadn't won. They've been winning this thing forever. They knew they had the best players in the world. It, you can imagine it took a lot more for them to say, we need to strategize and we need to figure out what's going wrong be- because they want to just believe, well, it's kind of, it's got to be a fluke, right? That these guys are beating, they're not as good as us. It's got to be a fluke. Whereas if you're Europe and you know, the Americans are better than you, you're, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, you're far more likely to find the little edge here and there where you can. So, you know, it goes into stuff. Those are the big ones, right? You know, the, the European fans were more passionate and partisan long before the Americans caught on. There's a great story in 87, the first year that the Europeans won in America, where they're just coming off 85, having won at the Belfry, and the fans were rabid and crazy, and the Americans like hated it. Like Hal Sutton was so mad, and they couldn't believe what had happened there. You know, this is basically dealing with like, you know, a, a golf course equivalent of a soccer crowd, and and golfers aren't used to that. So they go back to 87, very much wanting their fans to do the same thing. And at Mirfield Village, the fans have no idea that they're supposed to be doing this. They don't really understand what the Ryder Cup is. And they're just like politely, oh, ooh, Sevi Ballesteros is here. Yeah, it's a, what a pleasure to see him. They're, they're not partisan at all. And, and Jack Nicholas at one point goes out and buys like a million little American flags, American, you know, and, and he hands them out to all the fans. They're all, you know, politely waving their flags, but still cheering for everybody. They're <laughs> not partisan. And, and the Americans are so frustrated because it's like, these guys, like, they're killing us over in Europe. Like, they're screaming at us. They're spitting on our wives. You know, like, that was that was what it's like. Like, literally, these people are too nice over here. And, you know, Hal Sutton's trying to pump them up to no avail, and they lose. Um, and it's not till 91 that Dave Stockton makes it his business to sort of be like, this is how a Ryder Cup should be. And the war by the shore gets so insane. And, like, the Americans finally catch on. Uh, And the reason they catch on is probably because it starts to be on TV more right before then. And so there's things that they're seeing and knowing. Um, And, you know, the Iraq war was at that time. So there's this patriotic fervor. It just becomes more of what it is today where a living effing nightmare if you're on the road, no matter what team you are. Right. It's like every I guarantee you it happens every time in America. And I guarantee you there'll be something that happens in Italy where the U.S. will be like, this is just pathetic that they're treating us this way. It'll happen in Beth. Guarantee you it'll happen in Bethpage. Oh, God. <laughs> Bethpage will be, someone will be murdered. In, uh, uh, I, I want to see Sergio Garcia come back uh, for Team Europe at, uh, at, at Bethpage. Beth yeah. No, not not all of Team Europe is going to survive Bethpage. There's going <laughs> to be at least one death. Um, and that's that's just what you have to accept in the Ryder Cup now. No, uh yeah, so it's you know that just like the little advantages they picked at and picked at course course setup, having captains picks, little team chemistry stuff. You know, it's just all kind of and and they were more suited to it, I think, naturally because of their underdog status and beating America meant an awful lot to them. Where beating Europe was sort of unimportant to to the Americans. And the one quick thing I would add there is that you are now seeing a generation of players on the American team who grew up watching their team get their asses kicked right by the Europeans. And the amount that they care, like people like Justin Thomas, like you know, all of them, the unity they have at these Ryder Cups, they're not all best friends, right? But the unity they have and the passion they have is a direct result of having watched that. Before them, that generation didn't exist because they grew up watching the U.S. win or the Ryder Cup wasn't that important. So that's like a huge change now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. All, all of a sudden, the Americans have a little bit of that underdog mentality, which might be overrated as a motivational thing but maybe underrated as a team unifier you know yeah. the, the the sense that you know we are against the odds here and and that tends to bring teams together all right so switching to the american side fully 
the U.S. team did seem to figure some things out in 2008 when Paul Azinger was captain. Obviously, Azinger's system is very well known at this point, frequently discussed, but I, I don't know if people really are familiar with the details of it. They just say pod system and don't explain it. So could you explain it? What was the pod system and, and how did it work? And what were some of the other things that Azinger did that were smart in, in 2008? Yeah, the pod system came about because Paul Azinger was watching a um, guitar documentary or something. He's like kind of a, a big music guy. And he was just laying there on the couch. And the next thing that came on the History Channel or whatever it was, was a documentary about the Navy SEALs. And the Navy SEALs... Um, when they train, they have, te- I think, teams of six, or it may even be smaller, but they have these little teams, and the philosophy is, you know, you need to count on these people for your life, and so you get really close to them, and you have your own little unit there, and that really appealed to him, and it, he kind of, you know, he was always thinking about the Ryder Cup. This was like a very passionate thing for him. He loved it, and where he took that was, okay, what if we do this in the Ryder Cup, have these smaller groups together, and that really appealed to him because, you know, he had come of age at a time when every time the Ryder cup came around, the American philosophy was 12 people as one unit, you know, we're kumbaya, we're a team together. And he always found that kind of silly because the sport itself is so selfish and so isolationist that you can't just flip a switch, right? In the Ryder cup, you can't just say, yeah, we're a team now. We're like, it's not like you're the Chicago bulls all of a sudden or whatever. Uh, And so he always found that hard and his kind of thing was, okay, if we do this Navy seals thing, Instead of asking 12 people to be a unit together, I can divide people into groups of four and I can ask them to be a unit together. And that gets a little easier because people are friends or people have similar cultural backgrounds, right? Like the rednecks group he had, which was like three rednecks and then Jim Furyk because he just needed a fourth, <laughs> he just needed like a fourth guy. <laughs> so like Furyk was in the rednecks group. Furyk's the most patient guy. He can, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like he can, he can go get along with the rednecks. It's fine. Um but yeah, and so uh, you know he he did personality tests. I mean, he he f- was really smart in how he kind of arranged these four groups of people. Like Phil Mickelson was with Anthony Kim, right? They're both kind of California, you know, gunslingers. You have like Boo Weekly and JB Holmes together with the Redneck group, and I, I forget the other one, Kenny Perry, right? And so then there was another group of other people. <laughs> so they they just kind of he had these little groups together, and the idea was you're going to get to know each other, you practice together. The people who were on the team, he consulted them about captain's picks. He said, you know, who do you like? And he actually did a pretty revolutionary thing that he didn't publicize until after, which he let the pods of three pick their fourth player. So he didn't even pick the fourth player. He he basically, you know, within reason, right? He said, here's your list. Take who you want out of here. Um, and he, he took Steve Stricker, but the other three pods got to pick their own guy. And so like these little things that just kind of brought the team in, gave them ownership of it. And he felt that was by far the most important thing. And then team spirit kind of stuff. Like they had a pep rally in Louisville the night before, um, you know, just kind of getting everybody on board. Interesting that year that Tiger didn't show up, which I probably think had a, a sneaky unifying effect a little bit. You know, your top dog's not there. Europe comes in having dominated the Ryder Cup. One of the few times where on paper, Europe has the by far the better team. Uh, and it also so happens that they have one of the worst captains that's ever that's ever donned the sweater in Nick Faldo. So, you know, it comes in and, and Paul Easinger's plan works to perfection. And um, yeah, I mean, it just, and that, that kind of thing was like the seeds of a lot of evolution were in that. And then it, it gets lost because it's America. They get, it gets lost in 2010. Nobody consults Azinger. Nobody asks him any questions. Uh, 2012 Davis, you know, brings a lot of the same stuff back. 
has this unbelievably fluky Sunday at Medina where that leads to Ted Bishop, the next president of the PGA, going, let's get a Maverick in there, right? Like, let's get Tom Watson in there. This is a good idea, which leads to a complete freaking disaster at Glen Eagles. And after that, then the task force comes and, and looks at what's happened and all these ideas that Azinger had ideas that the Europeans have had, everything that they've had, you know, they start to get their act together in a big way to the point that now, I mean, it's just, it's an unbelievably well-oiled machine, uh, team rider, you know, team USA's Ryder cup thing. And they're, they're following a template and they're every bit as organized and smart as the Europeans, but it took a long, long time to get there. So take me through what went wrong for the American team at the 2014 Ryder cup. What's the basic diagnosis? I know a lot went wrong, but what's the core of it? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, you brought in a captain in Tom Watson who was far, far older than the team he was captaining. Didn't make a ton of effort to get to know them. You know, he always been a private guy. Watson was, oh, even when he captained in 93, which is the last time the U.S. won in Europe, he was a private guy. Um, you know, he, when he reaches out, he reaches out in ways that he's the leader. You know, he's kind of gruff. He goes by his gut. And things like, you know, when he, when he took a captain's pick of Webb Simpson, that was something that, you know, was based on a text message Webb had sent him the night before. There's little things that are just, there's not a coherent plan in place. And he happened to run into a guy in Paul McGinley who, you know, wasn't a 10th of the player Tom Watson was, or wasn't a 10th of the player of most captains that have ever existed, right? He might be the worst player that's ever been a captain. Um, but that doesn't matter, right? It's like it's like in, in baseball, there's the thing of like backup catchers make the best managers. And here you had the same phenomenon where he's a really good people person. Uh, he he planned like, you know, th he was a CEO, essentially. He planned unbelievably, really smart about how to deal with people. Um, went so far as to set the pairings on the European tour for the, the year prior so that he could see, without telling anyone, so that he could see how people played together. You know, I, again, I write about this more in detail in the book, but the planning is so intricate that it goes right down to the granular level of why am I playing this guy first on Sunday and why am I playing this guy 12th? And everything folds together neatly into this puzzle. And you're playing against a guy who's basically like a, you know, a, a drunken character in a Western shooting his gun at the ceiling. <laughs> like, and with, with all respect to Tom Watson, you know, John, <laughs> it's hilarious to say that after describing him that way. But no, he, he just went off his gut. He didn't know any better. And, you know, he ended up like, you know, the, he ended up turning the team against him in big ways. A great example was on session one, his deal was, okay, we, we're going to get, we got our, our four teams for session one. Session two, we're getting the rest of the people out there in two teams. And the other two teams are going to be based on how we play in session one. Well, Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed went and were amazing and he kept them out without a really good reason. He never really explained it. And, and Jordan and Patrick Reed were kind of pissed off about it. It was, it was not okay with them. And then he kept Phil Mickelson out, which, you know, Mickelson later had the big rebellion at the end of it. Like he pissed off his, his spiritual leader. It just was like, uh, everything was in shambles by, by the time Sunday came around and McGinley's plan was just like working like clockwork. Boom, 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 boom. They killed in the foursomes like they always do. And um, yeah, it was over very early on Sunday. So that, that's just a kind of a little taste of what went wrong, but it was essentially two fundamental differences in captain philosophies. One of which, you know, was so bad that it's now lost to history. It was the last time we'll probably ever see that. And the other one of which is, you know, basically you're uh, part of a continuous company here and the company is Ryder cup team Europe and, and you're going to build off what's come before. And now USA has the same thing on the other side. And, you know, in, in the wake of 2014, the task force on the American side was formed 
you know, maybe Phil Mickelson's comments at the press conference after the 2014 Ryder Cup helped this along, but there was a response from the American side and it took the form of this task force, which was initially the subject of some mockery, including by our mutual friend, uh, Lee Westwood, who, uh-huh. um, you know, has, has had some really bad takes that he hasn't necessarily, uh, owned up to all the time, but, um, <laughs> This is one of them. The task force has been pretty successful. What do you think uh, this this body has uh, ended up accomplishing, basically? It's funny. When you look back at Lee Westwood making fun of it, that should have been your first clue that they're on the right track. <laughs> 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 like Lee Westwood thinks it's terrible. Good job, guys. You're doing the right thing. Uh, <clears throat> no, you know, they, you know, again, it goes back to a lot of things we talk about. We have to take accountability for, you know, course setup. How do we how do we deal with our, you know, how do we form partnerships? How do we form pairings? And they don't always adhere to an exact like pod system, right? But they they do loosely adhere to a pod system. I mean, you know, they 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 have st- a stats outfit called Scouts Consulting, which I'm really high on. I think they're really brilliant guys, and they help with everything from pairings to the setup to you know every like granular little details of like this is a guy you want teeing off on this hole, and here's what we should do to the rough because their foursomes team always hits in the rough here, and our guys are here. You know, little things like that to logistical planning operations. Where's the team gym going to be? Where are we going to have our team meetings? How are we going to make sure that guys aren't sitting around forever at gala dinners, like before the event, like every little thing they can think of to make life good for their players, they do it. And and it's, it's, you know, there was a point at which I was talking to Davis love and uh, after whistling straights and, you know, he said, we're still looking at what we did wrong. And you're like, you won 19 to 11. You did, you did absolutely nothing wrong. What could you possibly be talking about? And he was like, well, the food delivery, <laughs> like he talk, started talking about food delivery. And you're like, wow, these guys are considering things down to the littlest detail. Really impressive, I think. I mean, it's, and I'm sure Europe is doing the same thing. Luke Donald's going to be a really, really good captain. But uh, yeah, so there's just nothing, no stone left unturned. The very simple, broad way to describe it is that they stopped treating the Ryder Cup casually. I mean, they started treating it like a serious business, and that's kind of what you have to do to win. Hmm. Now, Steve Stricker maybe is an example of a lot of this, or at least his captaincy is. Um, but the the way that he ran things, I think, is a, a great representation of what the task force is trying to accomplish in many ways. Not the most charismatic guy, not somebody who likes talking, right? Which you would think would be an important quality in a captain. So why was he such an effective captain in 2021 at Whistling Straits? Hyper-organized, right? Hyper, hyper hyper-organized, amazing attention to detail. His whole philosophy was, I'm going to out-prepare Poverty Harrington, and he did. Um, I mean, it... Who knows how much he had to like that was, but I mean, he completely left no stone unturned. Like you said, he couldn't give a speech if his life depended on it. Uh, motivational speech. He wasn't that kind of guy, but the Americans don't need that. Right. It's, this is the kind of thing where we, we go back to these old tropes of like, how's he going to motivate them? It's like, they don't need motivation. They just need to be comfortable. They're plenty motivated, which is, you know, maybe again, maybe a little different than previous generations. These guys, again, grew up watching Europe win. And so they're very motivated to win. But what's more important, and Stricker realized this, and America knows this, all their captains know this now, is that let them adhere to their routine as closely as possible because golfers are creatures of habit. And we need to make sure, like, you know, if you take a nap at this time of day or if you work out at this time of day, you can still do it. Uh, And that's actually way more valuable than some rah-rah speech or a hype video or something like that. Um, 
which, by the way, the Europeans have always responded to more than the Americans. Like, that's kind of a European thing. Like, let's have a hype video. Let's have all our cap. You know, those montages where it's like Sam Torrance being like, you will go get them. <laughs> yeah. It's like Seve yeah, And they, they come out to the public level. every year, too. And whenever people see these videos, it's like, oh, Europe by a million. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's like, that's that's good for them that they like that. But it, it ultimately, like, I remember when. Parry Carrington and his team go out in cheese heads at Whistling Straight, like the, the Packers cheese heads, and everybody's like, oh, what a coup. And you're like, this doesn't matter at all. Like, it doesn't, like the Americans are still gonna like throw things at them on Friday. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you're still gonna get hit in the head by a rock by these fans. You're not winning them over because you wore a cheese head uh, in Packers country. So, anyway, um, yeah. So, what was the question again? <laughs> where, where were we? <laughs> Why was Stricker such an effective oh, yes, captain? Yes, and, right, and, you, and you've described that pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So he was just he nuts and bolts guy. That's all you need. And he has the respect of the players. That's also important. Right? Yeah. So he already had the respect. He didn't have to be anything. He tried to give one speech when they did their pre, um, pre-Ryder Cup visit a couple weeks earlier. And he made it like five words before he broke down crying. <laughs> it was like, don't, don't give speeches, Steve. It's fine. <laughs> so you don't need that. You don't need that. You just need a comfortable atmosphere. And uh, somebody who can command respect and who plans like nobody plans, you know, like that's, that's the big thing. So a big issue this year and every year when it, when it comes to the Ryder cup captaincy is captain's picks. They were very hotly discussed this year during Stricker's tenure. His big accomplishment with the captain's picks was selecting Scotty Scheffler. Yeah. Figuring that out. And so I wonder if you could talk about that Scotty Scheffler pick, what was behind it, how it represents this new U.S. approach, and whether you think that has carried through to the way Zach Johnson approached his own picks this year. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, you know, they knew and the stats had indicated that Scotty Scheffler was a stud and he just hadn't won yet. And obviously he was on the verge of winning quite a lot, <laughs> right? That's, um, but he, you know, he had been in the finals of the match play that year and he had beaten Poulter and he had beaten Rom, you know, like, like he would again, beat Rom in the Ryder cup. Um, so they, you know, not only do they know that the guy statistically fit with the profile of the course, which the stats, I mean, the stats can show that completely, but he was also, you know, uh, somebody who was an elite player that nobody kind of recognized quite yet as an elite player. And so, yeah, you take that guy, right? You take that guy because you say not only does he fit the course, but this partnership in this case with DeChambeau is going to work really well. The stats guys give it the green light. And it's kind of an annual tradition for me to complain about captain's picks and be completely wrong. Like I did it in Paris with Thomas Bjorn's picks. I was like, why isn't he picking like, why is he picking all these off form veterans? And they all went undefeated. Um, and then I was like, you know, Kisner, what a match play dog he is. He should have probably been picked for this team. And Scheffler was, you know, unbelievable and much better than, than Kisner would have been. Um, and this time I, my complaint was that, you know, Moronk, I think should have made the team over Lowry. Although this time I think I'm thinking a little more statistically, but, but again, Lowry's like so close with so members of the team and team chemistry matters. So I'm probably wrong again, but yeah, uh, that, that captain's pick of Scheffler was really good. Right. And all his, he had a ton of rookies. A lot of them were captain's picks. They all played extremely well. It just, everything worked out because basically it was by the book statistical stuff, um, with an eye also on chemistry. So this year is Zach Johnson, um, you know, maybe his like Justin Thomas was the controversial pick. If, if you believe that, I think it was like the most obvious pick in the world to make. There's no planet on which I think JT shouldn't have been picked. Um, some people do, but 
you know, they're idiots. Uh, (laughs) It became political. It became all this stuff. But no, JT was like, JT is one of the best match play golfers that's ever lived on the American side in these team match play events. Um, And so I I thought that pick was a no brainer. I thought the real, the real controversy was between maybe Cam Young and Sam Burns. And there, I think you see, you know, Sam Burns is close with Scheffler. He's probably culturally more aligned with a lot of the guys. He's a Southern Christian, right? Like he's, more than Cam Young from the mean streets of the Bronx <laughs> type thing. But but really, like he's more of kind of like team chemistry-wise, he f- probably fits in just a little better, and that probably made the decision for them at the end. Um, he's also a really good putter, and Cam Young's a really good ball striker, so there's different strengths that they might have looked at. Um, but yeah, like Keegan Bradley not being on the team, you know, it, there's just a lot of little things where these guys are going to go with who they think should go there, and that's why captain's picks exist for them. And they're, you know, the, people need to get used to the idea of if you don't make the top six automatic qualifiers, that's all. That's all. That's all it wrote for you. You don't have to be picked. Like just because you won number seven, you don't deserve it. You deserve it if you make number six, right? Like that's that's the thing. After that, they're gonna pick the best people they think for the course, and that takes, I think, a fundamental mind shift that we're not quite ready for yet. Like people saying this guy deserved to be on the team. No, you deserve it if you make the team. Period. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, they're gonna take who they like, and that's what we saw this year on both teams. Yeah, and I, and I think that. Part of why people struggle with these picks and this process is that it's a combination of two really different things, I think. One is this statistical approach that is somewhat mysterious. People don't really know the details of it, but supposedly it is based on hard science. Right. On the other hand, there's the Azinger influence of the pod system of making players feel comfortable as though they're around people who are friends and making sure that the team chemistry is right. And that's not hard science and it can be accused of being a kind of buddy system. But I think that when you look at these picks, JT, Sam Burns, these are guys who are, you know, that the statistics would support in the case of Sam Burns with JT, you've got a career of being a great golfer, but I think maybe most importantly, I bet that these two picks in particular are players that the players who were already on the team said, this guy needs to be on the team. He's the best player. I want to play with him. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, Shane Lowry is actually the best example of the buddy system this year, right? Like probably statistically he probably didn't belong on that team. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, the, the thing is the buddy system, the buddy system is used as a pejorative, but team chemistry really matters in the Ryder cup. And so if you have somebody like nobody likes, it doesn't make sense to put them on the team because whatever value they bring is going to be probably a net negative to whatever, you know, awkwardness or whatever they bring to the team room. And that does create weird situations where you're like, well, yeah, I guess it is kind of, there, there is an element of the buddy system there, but I don't know competitively if that's a bad thing. Now, the more captain's picks you add, the more the buddy system can come into place, right? If we said tomorrow there's just 12 captain's picks, there's no qualifying for the Ryder Cup, then you're like, well, maybe Brian Harmon wouldn't make the team. Maybe Wyndham Clark wouldn't have made the team. You just kind of don't know. Um, So it's good. I think it's good that there are automatic qualifying spots. I think they've found a nice balance now, and I hope they don't tip it any more in the other direction. But I I think this allows a certain freedom. But what that freedom is is the freedom to create either statistically or chemistry, the team that you like. And so, yeah, it's going to make it more and more likely that JT 
you know, does somebody, oh, I think the stats and the chemistry support. They want him on the team. The players want him on the team. They probably want Sam Burns on the team, right? Obviously, the Europeans like Roy McElroy want Shane Lowry on the team badly. And that stuff matters. I mean, that, that stuff comes into play and it's 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 called the human element. And, that, and that's just gonna always be part of it. And it's been, by the way, it was part of it long before they had cap, you know, it, it's always been a part of it. All right. So we've got a pretty good sense for the current state of the American team. How would you evaluate where Team Europe is right now at this particular point in its history? Well, in their history there, um, I think subtly they're on the ebb, but you have to kind of take a leap of faith to believe that because they still haven't lost at home, right? Be, be, once they lose at home, then my theory will be proved correct, right? right? If they lost in Italy, then you'd say, okay, what we saw, what we thought were the general trends are now happening. Even if it's a close Ryder cup, you could maybe, and, and you don't say they won 15 to 13 or 14 and a half to 13 and a half. You could say, well, that's different too, because we've had four home blowouts coming before this. And now we see our first Ryder cup since, you know, Medina, um, but I, I think at the same time, you know, they look a lot better right now than they looked a year ago. I mean, it, everybody's on form. Like you saw what happened at the BMW PGA. You saw how well the guy, some of the guys played in the playoffs. They're all on form. They have like a, a top line of great players. They're, they're weaker down the ranks, you know, than the Americans, but even their weaker players seem like they're doing pretty well. And, you know, a, a pick like Aberg is really just so smart and, potentially could pay off in such a big way for Luke Donald. And that that's outside the box. I mean, that may not have happened even four years ago. Uh, and so it just shows you how things have changed and how analytics and, and stuff like that makes a big difference. So I, I still think I may end up, I still haven't decided, but I may end up when I write my prediction piece, picking the Americans to win. But right now it's like gun to your head. You're like, man, the home field advantage is so big. I kind of think Europe might still do it. It's, it's just really toss up in my head. So give Europe credit because a while ago, like a year ago, it seemed like, Oh boy, these guys are really in trouble. Like they're going right. to get blown off. The, I don't care where they're playing. They're going to get blown off the course. Now I don't, I don't think so at all. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the disadvantage for Europe still seems to be in those middle ranks of players. When you compare the middle of each team, the Americans look a lot stronger with guys like Shoffley and Cantley, you know, who are, you know, kind of in the middle ranks of the American team right now. But, you know, frankly, much better than the guys who are in similar positions uh, on the European roster. But Europe has maybe three of the four best players in the world right now in Rory, Rom, and Hovland. Uh, I mean, talk about a, a core of leaders that is just great. And then you've got some of these young guys who are rounding into their prime form at just the right moment. And so you have a combination that that very well could be a, a great, great team. Now, the interesting thing to me about the European team right now is the effect of live, right? Yeah. It yeah. has removed Westwood, Garcia, Poulter, Casey from the equation. And maybe, you know, taking out Lee Westwood is, is sort of a, a net benefit. Sorry, I don't know why I'm owning Lee Westwood so hard in this podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> I just, I just, I just uh, remember his performance at Hazeltine. I'm like, why, why would you ever want that? But um, Sergio yeah. Garcia, maybe the best Ryder Cup player of all time. Ian Poulter, certainly in that conversation as well. Ian Poulter said something to you for this book that was very resonant, where you asked him, you know, do you think 
that the Ryder Cup matters to the younger generation as much as it matters to you. And Poulter said something to the effect of, you know, don't worry about it. It's it's my fucking job to let them know. Yeah. Now he's not kind of around. So, like, what do you think the effect of that will be? Taking some of these veterans off the board who who may not have been good captain's picks this time around, who may not have been great playing contributors to the team, but who certainly would have been vice captains or, or involved yeah. in some way. Do you think that has an effect on the European side more than, say, taking DJ out on the American side will have? So on one hand, you can't underestimate the influence of losing guys like that. And maybe maybe none of them would have been players this year, but you would certainly want them around, right? Like Sergio and Poulter and all those guys. Um, but I will say this. Europe historically always functions best when they have a chip on their shoulders. And if I were Paul McGinley or Luke Donald, what I'd be saying is these guys abandoned you. The Americans think they're king shit and they think that nobody believes in you. You're the underdogs. Like this is, this is our time to go out and be wolves, right? Like, I mean, just to be kind of just to really like, no, like nobody believes in you. It's the ultimate bulletin board material. You lost all your best players, right? They're not around. You're a bunch of young guys and all this stuff. And it's not really true. <laughs> right. Like they're, as you said, they've got some amazing players on their team. They have a home crowd that's going to be supporting them like crazy. And that is undeniably significant in these things. It's huge, but I would be playing that card like crazy. And if they can do it successfully, which pretty easy when you've got America, right? America is the ultimate juggernaut. They're the ultimate evil villain. They're the ultimate evil empire in sports, um, for, for other people, <laughs> not for us, but for, for outsiders. Um, yeah, if you can do that, I mean, the motivation should just be incredible. I mean, it's, and these guys know what to do. Like you don't think Rahm and Rory can motivate those guys. Like you don't think Luke Donald, Luke Donald's like kind of an underdog captain. He was the number one player in the world, but he never won a major, right? Like he's like, all of these guys should just be like raring to go. Uh, I, I just think you're going to see so much passion from them that I think that's one of the most exciting things that America's going to take a punch at some point. The, the Americans, if they win, they're going to have to do it after they take a punch. Yeah. Yeah. And Luke Donald, uh, it's almost like a European version of a Steve Stricker captain, you know, different personality, but I think probably very organized, very, very smart and not somebody who brings a lot of like Tom Watson ish ego <laughs> into yeah. the, into the team room. And so he, he could be obviously extremely effective. I don't really know what to make of Zach Johnson at this point as a captain, but, uh, but you can't judge a book by its cover with these kinds of things. Obviously a lot of people judged Steve Stricker's ability to be a great captain ahead of time, just based on personality. And that didn't turn out to be really a relevant consideration. Now, at the beginning of this conversation, you indicated that you think we're we're at a moment right now where there's a this is a historical juncture where the Americans are going to be stronger than Europe going forward. And that would be that would be a major change, right? Because that has not been the case for the past 30 years. Yeah. And so you're making an argument that we're at that hinge moment right now. Now, I would just point out that American fans and American journalists tend to be uh, tend to overreact a little bit to an American win in the Ryder cup and say, this is going to be the case forever now. But sure, then yeah. all of a sudden we go back to a European venue and it's just like, why did we ever think that? So what's your case for why it's different now than it was after Hazeltine that it's different now than it was after any of the Ryder cups that America has won recently? Why is this the the hinge moment? Do you think? So let me look at 
let me look at the thing to make sure I've got this right. But one thing I would say is that, yeah, so I'm looking at the last time the U.S. won back-to-back Ryder Cups at home was 1979 and 1983. They've done that now, right? That, that wasn't something they did. And they won both of them convincingly. I have a really hard time imagining Europe winning a Ryder Cup in America in like the next decade. I think it'd be really very, very difficult. It would take extraordinary circumstances for them to do that. Um, I just think, yeah, I mean, look, you're absolutely right that there is a, um, call it like the English soccer disease where like, they always think they're going to win the world cup every <laughs> single time. and they're like shocked when they it's don't. Home. Yeah. yeah. It's always coming home. And, and Americans are like that. I remember in Paris, you know, people going over there, like a lot of media people we both know being like, this is absolutely going to be a destruction. And then you go, you said you go there and go, Oh yeah, they won the first session, but then it was four zero in the afternoon to the Europeans, and you're like, "Oh, what happened?" Right? Like it's like a big shock every time that these these underdogs manage to be competitive. The, my argument for why I'm not falling into that same trap is that just I think I've seen evidence over since the task force was uh, initiated that we just keep learning from our successes and our failures. So Paris was it's the ultimate thing. You, it's the wrench in the works to my theory, right? You're like, well. Yeah, if they're so good, why did they just go get their asses kicked again in Europe? Uh, and it's like, well, I think the reason is course, the course setup, the fact that nobody got out there to play beforehand except like Justin Thomas, right? He was, I think he played the French Open that year. Um, the fact that the it's just bad luck with the captain's picks, right? Like bad luck to have Bryson and and Tiger and Phil. They were all like Tiger was tired, Phil was not in form, Bryson had just won these things, but he wasn't suited for the course at all. It was just this variety of X factors that every single one went against the U.S. And I think it's a sample size thing. It's like, like if you if you run the Ryder Cup simulation a thousand times, sometimes even if you're really well prepared and have a good captain, you're going to just run into these circumstances that you can't control. So I, I think to me that's an outlier. But if you look historically, it's not an outlier at all. They keep they haven't won in Europe for thirty years. It's the, it's the opposite of an outlier. It's the most predictable thing that could have happened. But I think they're ready to overturn that because of how much they keep learning. Because you've got, a, a, again, a good system captain in Zach Johnson, sane, sensible captain's picks this time, a really acute sense of what happened in Paris. So you're going to be ready for that kind of thing. You know what the course is going to look like. Uh, strategically, you're going to be better off. I, I think like it's the big test. And so it's all theoretical for the next week and a half until it's, till it's put to the practice. And it's still a small sample size. It could, the same thing could happen. But I think they're ready to do it. It's... Leap of faith stuff. It's a leap of faith. You don't know until it happens, but that's my, uh, that's my best guess. All right. So Shane, uh, this podcast is going to come out, you know, midweek Ryder cup week. What are some of the things that you're doing, uh, in the, in the run up to the Ryder cup that people should check out? Oh God. Digging up any story that seems vaguely, <laughs> vaguely relevant or exciting. That's what I'll be doing next week. You get to Thursday and uh, Wednesday and Thursday of the Ryder cup week. And you're like, Oh my God, play some golf already. It's, yeah, exactly. it's the longest week. It's like trying to stir like any, any little it starts thing. on Friday too. Like with, with majors, uh, yeah, at least it starts on Thursday and gives you that, you know, extra totally. day of like not having to spin your wheels. Now I, I, I could have gone in on Sunday this year and I was like, no, I'm going in Monday. We're going to shorten this week a little bit. I'm going to get there Monday, check in and that won't hit the ground running until Tuesday. Um, because it's like, yeah, it's just not much happening and it's all hype. 
the British press will look for anything like little that the Americans say, you know, there's all these little things that happen, but everybody's also so cautious now, right? Like nobody's going to say anything stupid probably, but also they restrict media access to an insane degree at the behest of the players and, and captains. They don't want, so it's like very limited what you can do. So you're, you're like there, in my opinion, you're there like twiddling your thumbs. So Anyway, the Golf Digest coverage of Ryder Cup stuff has been awesome. There's like, you know, I just wrote a piece today about like what happened in 93, the last time the Europeans won. And what was that? Like, what are the, the worst captains? I mean, you just go on the site now. Like the stuff is, I'm reading it all and digesting it. Luke Curtinine's making videos. People at Joel Beale, everybody's writing these great things. So it's like a Ryder Cup nerd's dream. And right now is the great time to do it. Uh, and I, hopefully we're going to keep doing stories like that because you really start getting to the bottom of the well once you're at Thursday. You're like, please, like on Thursday, you're just praying, please let them set the lineup so we have actual news to, to cover. Um, but yeah, maybe I, I think there's going to be a lot of local stuff, like a lot of Italian stuff we'll be looking at. We're definitely going to be doing our Ryder Cup Radicals podcast, which has been really fun with me and Luke and Joel. Um, so yeah, we'll have stuff for you. Absolutely, we'll have stuff for you. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks, Garrett. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One thing that you can do to support Friday Golf is to join Club TFE. This is our membership. It's $120 a year, and you get all sorts of benefits and exclusive content with it. In the Club TFE blog right now, we're doing a weekly feature called Design Notebook, which keeps you up to date on everything that's going on in the golf architecture world and also gives you a, a little preview of the photos that we've been taking of courses lately and things like that. We also have a weekly course profile that we're posting, and these have been really fun to put together, and I think people have been enjoying them. So that's the Club TFE blog. But in addition to that, you get early access to Friday golf events, and you get to participate in things like the Maiden Member Guest, which is coming up fairly soon here in about a month or so at the Meadow Club, which is this great Alistair McKenzie course north of San Francisco. We're having our Club TFE member guests there, and it should be a really, really fun event. So if you're interested in Club TFE, if you'd like to further support Fried Egg Golf, then go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and check it out there. All right. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you after the Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm.